Welcome to Island Baptist Church. Today's sermon is on Nahum chapter 1 verses 1 and 2, part 2, titled A Vengeful God. We're in the book of Nahum. Nahum, minor prophets, not in there. The stuff they wrote about was not minor. They just didn't write a lot, and thus we call them minor prophets for only that reason. Nahum, page 1,343 in my Bible. Got it? We were in verses 1 and 2 last time of chapter 1, and we're not going to go any further today because of the the thickness of the topics that are raised there and the difficulty, I should say, also of the topics. You know, we always run the danger of, um, well, we always think we read the Bible and you think, well, all these people were nuts because they kept creating gods. Let me tell you something. The creation of gods is the profession of the human race. You do it. I do it. All of us do. Every one of us here have a concept of God, including me, that is not 100% accurate. Is that all right? You're missing something, me too. The only way we can get right or have a hope or to be in a process of getting right is coming back to the scriptures. It's dangerous, and they've got a lot going on today, and I don't know a lot about it, but I hear rumors of it, and that's all it is is a rumor, so take it for what it's worth. But you've got a lot of big movements, praise and worship movements happening, young people, older people, all kinds of stuff. And uh, the worship we sing in our churches, I mean, it's awesome stuff. It's incredible stuff. My, my question is always, it should always be our question, is this centered in the scriptures? And I'm not saying what they're singing is necessarily centered in the scriptures. I mean, I can stand up and sing the same words we just sang up there about a God that I've created in my mind. That's very dangerous. Unless those groups are coming back to the scriptures, based upon the scriptures. Why do we have praise and worship and then we read the Bible? Because we've got to make sure that I was worshiping the right God. We go home and waste our time. We got to come back to the scriptures. The scriptures will constantly tell us what is what is true. Our, our worship has to be based on that. But if all we do is worship and not come back to this, then we start deviating. And I say that because, like I said, our profession is to create gods. We all do it. We all have a god that we like, and it may not any given day be the god of the Bible. So come back to the scriptures, what and what they say. And then we, and I say that because of the topics that we're considering. Last week we considered the jealousy of God, and this week the vengeance of God not popular, not politically correct. They are biblically correct. And if you want to know the God of the Bible, then you're going to have to take him for what he says. And uh, so let's do that by God's grace. We're going to endeavor to do that, to understand him uh, properly and also the reasons why we need to understand him properly. The Oracle of Nineveh. Here we are, verse 1. The Oracle of Nineveh. The whole book is about God's um, wrath and vengeance toward Nineveh. Uh, and they got it coming, let me tell you. The book of the visions of Nahum, the Elkishite, verse 2. A jealous and avenging God is the Lord. Is that your God you're worshiping? Because that is the God of the Bible. And a lot of people don't like that, those things. And I would say if that's you, you've got yourself a problem. Because you've got a God that doesn't exist. Because the God of the Bible is that God. He's a lot of other things. To take these just as the lion's share and say, well, that's all he is, well then, yeah, you've got yourself a God that doesn't exist also. It is balanced 100% by his love, grace, and mercy. But you can't have those grace, mercy, love, and stuff without also the balance of jealousy and, and revenge. You can't. And I said, you may not like that, but let's, by God's grace, let's, let's, hope, let's, hope, let's all get over it, okay? Here we go. A jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is an avenging and wrathful. How many times has he got to say it? One more time, apparently. The Lord takes vengeance, it says, on his adversaries 
and he reserves wrath for his enemies, some tough pills to swallow. Father returns home from work, finds his four young sons in this big brawl, fighting, clawing, scratching, crying, pulling each other's hair, hitting, calling each other names, all kinds of things. He breaks them up. He says, whoa, 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 what's going on here? Takes the oldest one, stands up. He says, tell me what happened. How did it start? He says, it started when Todd hit me back, he says. (laughs) That's about right, isn't it? That's the way it is. We humans like to take matters in our own hands. Somebody does something to me, I do something back to them. They hurt me, I hurt them back. They hit me, I hit them back. You're mean to me, I'm mean back to you. You give me a dirty look, I give you a dirty look back. You um, let your dog use the bathroom in my yard. I don't know what's going on in my neighborhood, y'all. I got to get me a dog (laughs) so that I... Somebody has got no scruples in my neighborhood. Vengeance comes so naturally, doesn't it? It's so expected. Don't have to teach a kid to hit back, do you? To call the name back. He naturally, she naturally does that. There was a man who went to see a doctor about a dog bite, speaking of dogs. And a little concerned, this is a wild looking kind of dog, and no reason, just came up and bit him. He thought, well, maybe it has rabies. So he went and took a test, and sure enough, the doctor says, yes, you... You have contracted at least the beginning forms of rabies. And the guy says, well, do you have something to write with? He says, well, yeah. Hands him a pen and paper. He starts furiously just writing, 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 all kinds of stuff. And he was like, whoa, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute. Uh, you're going to be okay. We have shots that take care of this. No need to write, he says, uh, uh, a, um, you know, your final will and testament. And the guy says, oh, no, I'm not writing my final will and testament. He says, and I know about the shot. He says, the reason what I'm writing down is the names of the people that I plan on biting before (laughs) you give me that shot. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Like one preacher said, Lord, I, I know it's wrong to hate, but if it ever becomes right, I've got just the guy. Vengeance, listen, hear me carefully, is wrong for us 100% of the time. The Bible completely rules it out for us. You will never be right taking your own vengeance, ever. The Bible just restricts us from it completely. 1 Peter chapter 3, 8 and 9. Be harmonious, be sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil. Or insult for insult. Tell me how you're better than your four little boys, right? Tell me how you're acting and thinking better. We claim to be adults. Act like them in Christ. Let's grow up. But giving a blessing instead, for you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. Of course, the classic one with regards to revenge is the one that just takes it head on. Romans 12, right? Never. What does never mean? Never. There's no exceptions to this. The sovereign God who knows everything from the beginning has says there's never going to be a situation in which it's okay for you or me to return evil for evil. Ever. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. He says it again. Never take your own revenge. You think he means it? Yep. Beloved, but keep room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. See, there is vengeance. There is a repayment. There is retribution. 
you don't exact it. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, here's what our job is. Feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink, for in so doing you will heap burning coals on his head, which is a colloquial statement. In other words, you're going to turn him around. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Someone does evil to you does not give you permission to do evil back. Ever. Never do it. Vengeance is mine, God says. So why does God get to take, why does God get to do stuff that we don't get to do? And my mom raised me not to be jealous or take vengeance and then turns around and God gets to do all that stuff. Why does he get to have all the fun, right? Well, very simply and very straightforward to you, we would never do it right since nothing we ever do is 100% right. Vengeance would be among the worst things that we could ever do. We would never do it right. And since God never does, does nothing wrong, he would never do it wrong. So he restricts us. He restrains us, right, to only doing good, not harm. If we're going to err, err in the area of doing good. And that's what we do. We err. Even doing good, we don't do it right, do we? Can we do it good? Why? For the wrong reasons. Look at me. How awesome I am. So I, even in doing good, we don't do it correctly. So why would he ever give us the mission to do that which is bad or that which is a curse. I, I, I agree with God. I really do. I hope you do too. I think he's, he's, he's wise in doing this. God's always wise. Even when we do good, we often do it for the wrong reasons. Uh, a story is of a judge, true story, who sent us a defendant to nine, nine months in prison. And then the next day, his secretary brought the books to him and says, you know, actually, according to what this guy did, you could have only given him six months. That's the max. He was like, ooh, you know, you're right. Bring the guy back into my court this afternoon and I'll change it. So he brings the guy back into the court. Of course, he's expecting to say, listen, I was wrong about this. I should have only given you six months. And he says, he says, listen, I've heard that you've been a model prisoner and you were nice to me in the court. So because I'm a nice person, I'm going to lower your sentence three months. Like I said, did he do a good thing? Yeah, that was the right thing. Did he do it for the right? No, he took credit for stuff, didn't he? That's the way it is. Everybody makes mistakes, don't we? That's the problem with revenge. You can't make a mistake with it. So therefore, we're ruled out of it. That's the problem. We can't be a part of it. Only God. God does not make mistakes. The precariousness of vengeance means that we can't be involved in it. Vengeance is God's possession, it says, right? That's what it says. So he guards it jealously. It's his. And when you take it, you're taking from him. He takes it personally, as well he should. God guards this thing so carefully because it can be so explosive and so destructive, so therefore vengeance can only come correctly, listen, from one who knows everything. Is that you? It's not me. Not only has God known, knows everything, he has always known everything. He's not shocked by any of it. See, part of our, part of our problem is we get shocked. It flew all over me, Right? It just came up on me. I don't know what had happened. And I said and did stuff I shouldn't have. And there you go. Right. That's why you're not allowed to take vengeance. Only one who is perfect in knowledge and has always known can be the one who exacts vengeance. Only one who weighs all circumstances and sees every contingency. That's not you. That's not me. Only one, listen, who never flies into a rage. Again, false concepts of God trying to knock them down because the scripture doesn't teach this. God does not get angry. God is angry against sin. He has always been. 
We have this false concept that God is the crescendo of God's anger is building. And the way we know he reaches his limit, because that happens to us, right? I reached my limit. What happened in here, honey? All the kids are crying. Well, I reached my limit. That's what happened. Well, that's the way we are. God's not like that. We have, the, we have this idea, this crescendo of anger and wrath and vengeance is building, and that one day it's going to be too much, and so God's just going to let it all go. No. God has always been at the same level of vengeance and wrath from the beginning. It says that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. Paul writes this in Romans. Against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. He has always been angry toward that which is wrong and evil. He has always planned vengeance and retribution to the things that are evil. Always. It's not building. It's built. The reason why he hasn't unleashed it is because, it's a deep theological thought, because he hasn't. That's why. <laughs> because he prefers, as it says, that you, not, that you not receive wrath. Instead, that you would come in repentance. He doesn't want you to be caught up in this. And so he extends, he puts up with, how could God put up with these people? How could God continue to let this go? Because he loves them, that's why. He doesn't want them to get what's coming to them because they're going to get it. He doesn't want that. Only one who doesn't fly in a rage is capable of, committing, of, of carrying out vengeance. Only one who never makes a mistake. And that is definitely not me and you. It's not us. God, listen, his perfect vengeance is tied to his perfect justice. You don't have perfect justice, therefore you can't have perfect vengeance, therefore don't be involved in it. God is perfect in his justice. Consider what he says here in 2 Thessalonians. It only stands to reason, doesn't it? That's what he says here. After all, it's only just for God to repay. It is. It's only just. You and I, in our limited understanding of righteousness and justice, can look around and say, this isn't right. It needs to be rectified. Yeah. Think how God is. Think how he feels. It's only right that he should repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire dealing out retribution. He's going to be doing it. It's going to happen. Is that within your parameters of the theology you had of God? Because if it's not, then you don't have the God of the Bible. You've invented yourself a God. Because the God of the Bible will read not of the Bible, y'all. And no, these are not hedged in and brought in, and God doesn't repent of these positions that he holds anywhere in the scriptures. This is the God of the Bible. By the way, it's the whole point, retribution and revenge, the whole point, more or less, of the book of Nahum. God's taking vengeance against these people. Do you know what they did? Let me just say to you, you would have killed them a long time before God did. You would have wiped them out a long time before. These people were wicked. Ninevites, Assyrians, you know what they, they would, they, they loved they, they made a sport out of killing people. They loved it. They would go and offer peace to any city that would capitulate. But if you didn't capitulate, oh boy, here we go. Go in and kill every last person, everything that breathed. No exceptions. Cut off all their heads, make pyramids in the main gates of their heads. Skin the leading men like you do an animal. Tan their hides and put them on their furniture in the places where they lived. So ladies, you would have a room that you would call the Jerusalem room. And the reason why you called it that is not to commemorate Jerusalem because the skins of the furniture that was in that room came from people that you killed, your husband killed there. You'd have the Damascus room and then, I don't know, the Antioch room or whatever. 
That's the way they operated. They were very heavy-handed and godless people and no limit to their sin and wickedness. And so God is going to exact retribution. He calls them the city of blood in chapter 3, verse 1. Chapter 3, 19, he notes them for their cruelty. Chapter 1 in Nahum tells us what God will do to this city. Chapter 2 tells us how he's going to do it. Chapter 3 tells us why he's going to do it. That's the whole book of Nahum. That's what it's about. How, listen, how could God be just and let what they do continue? Not pay them back. How? See, we're upset about the vengeance of God. So if he wasn't vengeful when those kind of things are going on, I wouldn't want that God. This is also, by the way, taken into context of the whole book of Nahum with the entire book of Jonah, which, of course, demonstrates the pattern of God. 100 years before, God sends Jonah a missionary. Well, he doesn't want to be, but he goes anyway uh, through the belly of a fish, nonetheless. But he goes up to Nineveh to preach. Yay, 40 days, right? And the wrath of God's going to come. And what happened? They believed, it says Jonah, and they believed the word of God, and they repented. And guess what? God forgave them because that's what God prefers. It's a strange work when God carries out vengeance and wrath. He prefers forgiveness and grace. He prefers mercy and kindness. And so he loves it. In fact, Jonah says the very thing. Remember, Jonah, Jonah wasn't too happy, let's just say, about the fact that God forgave him. Jonah throws the, the whole last chapter of the book. It's just nothing but a pity party because Jonah is so upset that God didn't kill every last one of them. Because as far as Jonah was concerned, in his book of that which is right and wrong, personal vendetta book of Jonah, God should have done something. And God did. He forgave them. Jonah couldn't have that. He, he effectively says, I knew that you would do this. That's why I took off to Tarshish. I took off because I knew, he says, he accuses God of this. He's correctly accused. That you were kind and gracious and compassionate and forgiving to sinners. I knew that you were like this, Right? It's a flaw of yours, God. <laughs> of course, he's recipient of the kindness, mercy, and grace of God himself. But albeit he thought, well, I'm, I'm a little bit worthy, but not these Ninevites. Kill them all. So it, it demonstrates to us the pattern of God that wrath and vengeance come only after he's exhausted mercy and grace and kindness. Why, why isn't God exacting vengeance and wrath upon this planet? Because he hasn't exhausted mercy and grace yet. And when he does, when he exhausts it, no one will need to tell you that this is the end. Because the vengeance and wrath is going to come with omnipotence. It's going to come with omnipotence. Nobody will be able to say, this is it. If they have to tell you, then, then it's not it. It's not. By the way, like I said, John will want none of it. Right? Jonah wanted him killed about 100 years before, before Nahum, which is God's judgment against this city, you had the book of Jonah. Jonah wanted him dead then. God gave him 100 years of repentance, didn't he? Because that's the way God is. Which all together demonstrates one more time why you and I can't be involved in vengeance because we never do it right. Jonah would have had him dead 100 years ago. It would have been wrong. It, it would have foregone all those who could have repented in turn and brought honor to God. God is honored either way. But he's greatly pleased and honored when people turn in repentance towards him, which is exactly what happened in the Ninevites when Jonah preached to them. Leave it to God, y'all. Only he can do it right in the right way at the right time. We cannot. God's, listen, perfect vengeance 
is a product of his perfect justice. Justice isn't a rule that God follows. Justice is who he is. It's not the same. You and I exact justice based upon a set of rules. God's not like that. God exacts justice based upon his nature. It's who he is. It flows from him. It's a part of who he is. Because, listen, there is injustice. His justice demands vengeance. It's just the way it is. And it will proceed as do all things from God from his perfection. God will act against wrong because he is good, period. He will right every wrong. No one's getting away with anything. No one, ever. Even the smallest word a man speaks, Jesus said, he will have to give to account for it on the day of judgment. He's counting down the words for you and me and all the other world. You think they're getting away with a single act, a single intent of their heart? No, they are not. It's not, again, this is not a politically correct topic. Like I said, it's not the way you build churches and raise money. We're not trying to do that. We build churches and raise money, awesome. But we bottom line, and we have to honor God. And we have to see what God, what the Bible says about him. Again, we love to talk about heaven, don't we? I do. I don't like this topic. But it's not about me. I didn't write this book either, by the way. We, we, we love to talk about heaven. We live as though hell doesn't exist. And, you know, if you're already saved and trusted Christ, I guess it's not that big of a deal. But we're left here for a reason, to portray the real God to our world. And the real God is a, is a God that's not out of balance like that. Nothing but heaven. Let, let me ask you something. Let's say tomorrow, let's pretend you don't know me, all right, because that, that would skew the, the illustration. This weird guy that looks kind of strange and needs to get a real job shows up your door with a bottle of clear stuff. I knock on the door. You open the door. Hi, my name is Bill Waddell. I've sold all that I have to buy you this cure, and I want to give it to you for free. First question is, cure for what? I'm not sick, right? In the back, you're saying, honey, dial 911. We got a nut at the door. Because <laughs> it it's totally crazy. Why, why would I drink? Uh, first of all, I don't know you. Secondly, I don't, I don't have anything wrong with me as far as, I, as far as I know. And then now you're telling me you sold everything to buy me this cure? If, on the other hand, I cared about you enough to come and talk to you, because of whatever my knowledge is of, of, med- of the medical field, get you to go to the doctor, and the doctor diagnoses you with a per- per- particular illness that is terminal, unless you get the very expensive, uh, let's say, uh, cure, and then when the doctor diagnoses you, I pop up with a bottle and say, by the way, I knew you had it. I sold all that I have to buy you the cure. Now the cure means something, doesn't it? I'm not as nuts as I was. You still probably ought to have an analyze, I would say. <laughs> but but you, the gesture totally changes, doesn't it? Instead of me showing up at your door when you don't think anything's wrong with you. See, we preach constantly the cure. Jesus loves you. God loves you. God has a wonderful plan in your life, and we don't preach the disease. People, why should I have the cure when I don't think I'm sick? I don't think I'm a sinner. I don't think wrath, I'm, 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 God is storing up wrath for me. If I don't think that, then when you preach the cure to me, I'm not going to take it. I don't need to be saved. Of what need do I have to reconcile myself with God since, as far as I know, you haven't told me that there's going to be an accounting. 
See, until they understand the disease, the cure makes no sense. You follow me? When we have a God out of balance, we don't tell them about the vengeance and wrath of God and that there's going to be an accounting and there's going to be retribution. And we tell them Jesus loves them, on the other hand, all the time. Guess what? They don't care. They don't care. They don't accept it because they don't think they're sick. Because we got God out of balance. We do. God's vengeance, listen, and his justice are the balance to all other things we know about him. And if in your theology of God you don't have vengeance and wrath and you don't have anything else that's true about God, even though you're talking about his grace, because that grace you're talking about does not exist unless it's in balance. It does not. As an example, true story of a professor Speaking of taking for granted and where we go when all we hear is the good news and never are brought into the bad news, here's, here's a story for you, a true story. A professor hold, told his class at the beginning of the year what the requirements were. It's the fall semester, and, and they were going to have to write three papers. Each one of these papers was due at the end of each month of that semester. First paper is due the last class of September. Second paper is due at the last class of October. The third paper is due the term paper the last class of November, and he says, here's the rules. That paper is due on that day. If you do not turn it in on that day, it is an automatic F. No excuses. So, rocking along about a month and a half into the school, into the last class of September comes up, guess what? Papers are due. Turn in your papers, the whole class gets up with the exception of two or three who come to the front trembling. I mean, scared. But they're about to get an F because they don't have their papers and they throw themselves on the mercy of the professor because it's extenuating circumstances and yada yada and you don't know what happened, my dog ate it, et cetera, et cetera. And the professor, big hearted, gives in to them and says, all right, guys, in the morning, though, I got to have that paper on my desk. Sure enough, boom, 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 there it was. The three got their papers in, no big deal. Done, he, he extended grace to them. He says, but don't let it happen again because the next paper's coming in a month. So the end of October gets here, guess what happened? It wasn't three. It was about ten. Same kind of thing. This happened, this happened. You can please, 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 please forgive us. Uh, among the ten was one who was in the group of in September. By the way, noticeably not as scared as she had been, at least demonstrated. In September. That's interesting. They throw themselves in the mercy of the professor. The professor's big hearted. He gives in. He says, okay, on my desk in the morning, or it's an F. Everybody had their stuff in. Next morning. Don't let it happen again. The term paper, which is at the end of November, they will, this will not happen. And so November happens. Everybody comes down. He says, I need you to turn in your papers. Only about two-thirds of the class got up and walked forward. A full one-third, more or less, of the class never got up. He says, where's your papers? We're getting them. We're working on them. Give us just a little bit more time, a little of extensions. He said, no. He pulls out a book, a little black book with his grades in it. He starts calling out names. So-and-so, are you here? Yes. Do you have your term paper? No. F, he says. Term paper. What? There's just, just shock in the room. Next person, you got your paper? Yes, good. You got your paper. Next person, no. F. The guy stands in the back. That's not fair. 
That's not fair. He says, so this isn't fair? You feel like this isn't fair, sir? He says, yes, I feel like it's not fair. It, so are you asking for justice? He says, yes, we want justice. We want it to be done correctly. He says, since you want it done correctly, I believe, sir, you were one of the group that didn't turn your paper in the first, the first month of the semester. He says, so fairness says that I not only need to give you an F for the paper you're not turning in today, but also an F for the paper you didn't turn in back then on the time according to what it says in the syllabus when you're supposed to have it. Oh, it's got a big hush all over the whole room. It's amazing how understanding and accepting that this young man was, he says, after that, of only getting one out of what he deserved to have at least two Fs. You see, until we have balance of what really is going to happen, we start taking it for granted. We start running, right? We admit, like I said, we're all, we're all capable of creating gods because that's what we do all the time. Oh, God's like this. He's like that. And not coming back to the center, not coming back to the balance of scriptures. We have to fight, listen, for balance at all times, especially when it comes to our understanding of God. Again, we love to talk about his love, his mercy, his forgiveness, his grace. But hear me carefully. These are worthless, non-existent attributes apart from his jealousy, vengeance, and wrath. They don't exist by themselves. And if all you have them is that's the only God you've got, then you've got a God who's an apparition. He doesn't exist. He does not. Why? Why, if there is no vengeance and wrath and jealousy and retribution, why would I ever need to run to his mercy and grace? Why? Why waste my time? I've got plenty of stuff to do. Why, why do I need to seek his forgiveness? Is that there's no accounting, you see. If I'm not going to have to answer to him, don't talk to me about getting my life right with Jesus. It's a waste of my time. Me and the man upstairs will make our deal when I get up there. That's the philosophy of a lot of people because they don't understand the disease, you see. They don't understand what's coming. And the fault is ours because we have this, don't we? We've gotten scared of, pre we've gotten scared of running off people. We prefer to build churches and build budgets as opposed to build the congregation in heaven because we leave out the truth. People don't run to the cure when they don't have the truth. They do not. Here, here, here's a, here's a, uh, a question that we get as Christians. I know I've had it a lot as a pastor. You've probably heard it a lot. I had a person in the previous service that came to me and says, that's my daughter and son-in-law. They don't go to church because of this question. I know a lot of people that are out of church because they can't seem to get an answer to this question. I want to give you an answer. Let me give you the question first, then I'll give you the answer. Here we go. Here's the question. How can a God of love be also a God filled with wrath and anger? That's the question. They can't put the two together. If he is loving, here's what they say, and perfect, he should forgive and accept everyone. He shouldn't get angry. All right. So, first of all, that betrays ignorance in several layers. An ignorance of God of the Bible, first of all. And just an ignorance of how love works in general. Here was, here was an answer to a pastor a pa that a pastor gave, and I, I love his summary, basically, of this. He says, so tell me, you're loving people, requires you to never get upset. Here's an example, put yourself in this situation. Your child is harming himself. 
He's headed down a destructive path. And you're supposed to be happy with that. Is that right? No. You're supposed to be incensed at that. This is your child. You, you love him, right? And by the way, if you were indifferent toward it, we would def- him, we'd be definitely certain that you don't love it. You're supposed to just sit back while he destroys his life and ruins those and keeps you up all night. You're supposed to just sit back and just say, it's not a big deal. doesn't bother me at all. Really? You know what the epitome of hate is? Apathy, indifference. I don't care. That's truly hate. Not me stabbing you in the back, just me not caring. That's what you want God to do? That's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible loves desperately. And as he sees the cancer of humanity eating us from the inside out, he can't just stand by and he's not going to be happy. And why would we ever expect him to be that? You see, if he truly loves, then when things are going bad, and they are, then he ought to be full of vengeance and wrath. He ought to be very upset. And as a matter of fact, he is. Here's some balancing verses for you to consider. Isaiah 59. His arm brought salvation. This sounds, it's going to sound like a New Testament, chapter 6 of, of Ephesians. Uh, the armor of God, right? Here it is, in the Old Testament. His arm brought salvation unto him, his, and, and his righteousness, it sustained him. For he put on righteousness as a breastplate. It says that in the New Testament, right? Helmet of salvation, there you go. Here's a piece of armor that's not included in the armor you're supposed to wear. Upon his head, the salvation, right? But not the next one. He put on the garments of vengeance for clothing. That's a part of the armor of God that you don't wear. Only God does. But there's going to come a time when he cloaks himself in nothing but vengeance. It's not today. How do we know? Because, man, you would know. Clad in zeal as a cloak, right? That's the God of the Bible. You know, again, we, we had this idea that, that, the, that the, the, the anger of God is in a crescendo type of thing. It's just building. And when it gets too much, he's going to let it go. No, that's not true. He's been angry since the beginning. The second sin, the first sin after the Garden of Eden sin was a sin in which a brother killed a brother, right? Cain kills Abel. God goes to Cain. Remember the story? He says, where's your brother? He says, I'm not my brother's keeper. He says, behold, the blood of your brother Abel cries out to me from the ground. Wow, that's a, that's a rich statement, isn't it? Rich in meaning, cries out to God. What is it saying to him? Vengeance. Retribution. Repayment. That's been 6,000 years ago. How much innocent blood has been spilled on this earth since that day? Can you imagine what he hears? Can you imagine? But you think he's not full of wrath and vengeance. Oh, you are so mistaken. Some erroneously think also that the vengeance of God is just an Old Testament topic in the book of, but, but, but in fact, it's not a New Testament topic. Have you never read the Bible? The book of vengeance is in the New Testament, spells it out in great detail how God is going to take vengeance and exact retribution on a planet that has hated him and turned their back on him. It's called the Revelation. By the way, it's, it's, it's basically spun off a request of a group of saints who have been beheaded because of their faith. They cry out with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging 
our blood on those who dwell on the earth? The answer is not long. That's the answer. Again, people say, well, it's not a part of the Old, it's a part of the Old Testament, New Testament, but it's not my Jesus. My Jesus would never do stuff like that. Well, I don't know who your Jesus is, but he's not in the Bible. Because that is, they're crying out to Jesus. Again, straight out of 2 Thessalonians. We saw it before, read the rest of it. For after all, it is only just for God to repay. With affliction, those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed. That word is the same word that is the title of the book Revelation. It's an unveiling. When he's unveiled from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution, who's going to do it? Jesus will. You're Jesus, or the one you should have. To those who do not know God and those who do not obey, the emphasis is obviously mine. No, no underlines not in the Bible. Who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, they will pay the penalty of eternal destruction. They won't get another chance. God's not like that. No, your God's not like that, but the God of the Bible is. Away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. That's, that's the real Jesus. The real Jesus, here you go. His winning for John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, describes Jesus from, in a metaphorical sense as someone who's winnowing out the grain. What they would do is they would take the grain and put it in big piles. They would cut it down in shocks of grain. They would put it on the ground and they would run over it with threshing sledges. They would trample it. And the whole idea is to separate the grain from the chaff, right? You've heard that before. But still, it's in a pile, one pile on the ground. The way they get the grain away from the chaff was they would take what's called a winnowing fork, a pitchfork run it underneath the whole bunch of it, throw the whole thing up into the air. you got to have a breeze. And what happens is the weightier grain falls back down to the feet of the one who's winnowing, and the chaff blows down wind so that in the process, once you're done, you have two piles, a pile of grain that you keep and a pile of chaff that you burn. And John is illustrating this, speaking of Jesus, that he's going to be one separating from those who belong to him and those who do not. Watch what he's going to do to them. Winnowing fork is in his hand. He will thoroughly clear his threshing floor. He will gather his wheat into the barn. I hope you're part of that. He will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Hope you're not a part of that. That is the Jesus of the Bible. As we say, Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. That is true. That is available. That is offered to you. God offers himself. God is holding out his arms to us. Please, come. Receive my love, accept, believe, trust. For those who will have nothing to do for that, the opposite is going to be true. Jesus does not have a wonderful plan for your life. He has a horrible plan for your life. Again, Matthew 25, he will say to those on his left, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. That's balance got to be balanced no one comes to faith in christ until they know the whole picture you got to have the bad news or the good news makes no sense you got to know you got the disease or the, the cure makes no sense why would i ever be cured from something i think i don't have yeah got to be balanced don't we got to come to the scriptures we've got to know that god has to be angry why would he ever be happy with the condition our world is in it's not gonna last forever to be sure Let's bow our heads, close our eyes, as we think about what God has said to us today. A vengeful, wrathful, jealous God. Yep, that's right. 
How could he be anything other than those things, considering what sin has done, considering what the devil and wickedness has created? He can't just sit back with his arms folded, not if he loves us, not if he cares. He can't be indifferent. No, he loves passionately. And he passionately wants us to accept him, to trust him. Scripture says about Jesus, to as many as received him, that to them he gave the right to become the children of God, even to those who believed in his name. It's just a matter of accepting him, you see. It's a matter of placing my faith in him. He doesn't want you to get what you deserve, what's coming to you. He wants to give you the cure. He is the cure. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you haven't just provided a cure, you are the cure. Salvation isn't an antidote, it's a person. It's you, God the Father, we thank you for sending your Son to be our cure, to be our hope, and we thank you, God, and we look forward to the day in which you send your Son to fix this place and to rid this place of all who, who will not do what's right. God, we, it's in your hands, though. Retribution and revenge is not ours. It belongs to you. So we trust you with it, God. Help us to be the people of peace and, and of grace. Help us to be the peace of people of, of blessing that you've called us to be. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for visiting. Find us at www.islandbaptist.org.